notes and in English. Nice. Yeah, well, in in my translation, it says uh, this is our land mm -hmm. and it belongs to us and yeah. our people stand for it and uh, I might be <laughs> um, I might be charged with something, so I oh. have to check that out. Okay. <laughs>
Hi, welcome to the Arts Report for February 5th, 2014. Tonight on the show we have arts reporters Danielle Piper, Julia DeVita, and Joshua Gabert-Doyon filling us in on some theater, film, and arts around town. I've got a few announcements to share, and stay tuned at 6 p.m. for a new episode of Blank Verse. Welcome. This is my first show um, as arts director. I'm gulping because Megan Thomas, who was our former arts director and co-host, left on somewhat short notice to go to CJSF. Um, And I'm quite crushed. I'm picking up the slack in the short term. Um, But I wish her all the success in the world. They have truly gotten a treasure, as they'll soon find out. I can't say enough about Megan. She has been such an incredible mentor. She's a hard worker. She's like a master of email and social network. She's totally passionate and dedicated to the arts. She had this incredible stamina to go out to all these arts events every week. Um, And she's smart as a whip. So uh, she's going to come back. I think we're having our fun drive at the end of March, or end of February, early March, and she's going to come back for a show, um, and we really miss her. So it's fallen to me sort of in the interim to pick up the torch, um, and yeah, so I'm trying my best, um, and the arts department and the arts report is really a collective that's changed hands over the years, and it's an entity that's sustained over time. Uh, so I'm looking forward to what I can bring to the role over the next while, and So goodbye, Megan. I'm going to give you five precious seconds of radio silence to say goodbye. Well, that was hard. But uh, anyways, I just played uh, Hole and their song Malibu. And I guess I played it because that quiz has been going around. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, What Riot Girl from the 90s are you? Have you done that quiz? No, I have I did it. What, what did you get, Julia? It was incredibly disappointing. I got Alanis Morissette. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> what? Why? It's not me. I was actually hoping for Courtney Love. but oh, yeah. I got Courtney Love. I, I was just like, it was kind of ironic. I got Courtney Love, <laughs> I guess, because I've always kind of hated her. But I guess we had more similarities than I thought. Ruthless ambition, apparently. Mm. I think the essay, or the, the uh, question that gave me the Courtney Love was, if you were mad, what would you do? And I answered, write a pointed essay and I think that's what gave me the Courtney love what what makes you think you got I honestly have no idea I feel like I was purposely the entire time trying not to get Alanis so (laughs) I don't know how it happened but I guess I'm just angry and brooding is yeah well Alanis is sensitive you know that's it yeah Yeah. so your sensitivity was captured Good. I guess that's. I guess that's a good thing. You really turned me around on this one. Um, there was also the what '90s, like grunge rock dude. Are you? Oh, Did really? you take that one? I haven't. I took it last yet. night, and then I was just like, I'm ashamed of myself. Like this is a complete time <laughs> suck. But I got back, and oh, I was like, that's, that's cool, because yeah. other people were getting like Chris Cornell or I don't mm, know. Gross. Yeah. So I was like, Beck is cool. That's that's good. Nice. Yeah. And so you're Julia. Yes. And you're here to talk about um, the Belkin Gallery shows. Yes. But 
first, we want to have Danielle on. Hi, Danielle. Hi. Uh, you were on a while ago. What did you talk about the last time you were here? I talked about Becky Shaw. Yes, the play. Yeah. yeah. And we had a good chat. You had a very yeah, excellent I, I, take I on it. I loved it. Yeah, it was a great show. Mm-hmm. Well acted. Um, the set was amazing. The actors were amazing. And I think it was well directed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you've got something new that you went to see. Yes, I went to see the Great Digital Film Festival. It's a one week only event. It started last week, Friday, and it ends tomorrow, sadly. But um, it just gives everyone a chance to go see their favorite superhero films or anime or fantasy films on the big screen, either again or for the first time. And so some of them were like older films or vintage films? Yes, so they had the original Superman. Um, They had anime films such as Akira and Ghost in the Shell. They had the original Planet of the Apes, the original Tron. Um, So yeah, and they had a lot of new ones like The Dark Knight as well and The Avengers. Wow. Very cool. So you went to see Planet of the Apes. I did. It was my first time seeing the original. I've only seen the reboot, so I was really excited. And so how was it? I loved it. I like seeing... Um, the original after I see reboots because I give it more uh, a fair chance. If I see the original and then see some the sequel afterwards, I almost I'm always ninety percent of the time I'm very disappointed. Mm-hmm. So I gave the reboot a fair chance and I liked it. And I saw the original and I liked it even more. So I loved it. I've never seen it, but of you course should. it's so famous. It is. It's so famous, and <laughs> even in the crowd, the crowd was um, like whispering the lines as it was <laughs> going on. And I was like, I haven't watched it, guys. Stop. <laughs> So what's it about for those who've never seen it? So pretty much these three astronauts um, uh, crash land on this, what they think is a distant planet. And at first they think it's deserted and they uh, come upon life or human life. And soon after these um, gorillas, apes and chimpanzees ride in and they have this superior intelligence and they seem like the rulers over the humans. And for the entire movie, you think that Um, you're on a distant planet but in the end they figure out that it was actually earth and all the humans kind of destroyed it (laughs) Mm -hmm. that could happen it could (laughs) i'm still waiting for it to happen (laughs) and like charlton heston is famous in it yeah was he good he was amazing yes he was he was the uh um the star he played uh can't remember his name i'm sorry but he's uh famous for saying the famous line get your dirty paws off me you stupid ape along those lines but yeah (laughs) (laughs) get your dirty paws off me you stupid ape i'm gonna say that when someone tries to lay their paws on me (laughs) which never happens (laughs) (laughs) but maybe someone will try because then i can practice saying that And what else did you see? I saw Ghost in the Shell. Um, That's an anime film. It's very popular. It was a manga before the film. And it pretty much discusses uh, um, a security agent um, hired. Well, it's a security agency. And they're looking to catch this mastermind hacker called the Puppet Master. And they go in thinking that um, he has these set goals, his set plans, and he has a set identity, but what they find out in the end that he's nothing like what they thought, and his goals are completely different. And it ends up with kind of this political intrigue and this complex storyline of um, self-identity and self-awareness, and I, I love the dialogue, and the imagery was great, and what I've heard is that it helped influence the Matrix trilogies that we all watch, so that was great. What year was it from? It was from 1994. I believe I think I'm gonna ask a profoundly dumb question which shows my advanced age 
And that is, what is anime? <laughs> what? I know. I know. It's like Japanese animation yeah. cartoons. Okay. Yeah. I kind of know that, I guess. But like Sailor like, Moon. Like Sailor yeah. Moon and Dragon Ball Z. I know none of those Case things. closed. And, yeah, so it's like a genre. Yeah, it's a genre. Of it's, it's very it's very intense. Like the actual like anime films beyond the like cartoons that have become so popular mm-hmm. are usually like they have really like sexual ones and yeah, like, they or they're really violent or mm-hmm. something and it's it's very I don't know, they're crazy. It's like a trip watching it this. Is. And they have a similar kind of drawing style, yeah, is that I'll, right? Like yeah, definitely. Uh usually big bright eyes, um, very well usually if it's short it's very choppy kind of hair and it's really creative i think a lot of the cartoon characters always have very funky hairstyles Mm -hmm. um so they all look it's a similar drawing technique or style but the characters are also individual in a sense Mm -hmm. and um like uh, i can't remember what's gonna say is it futuristic is it set in the future most anime well not all of them Ghost in the Shell was. It was very futuristic and technologically advanced. Um, so a lot of the characters had uh, tech bodies or biotech bodies, and a lot of their parts had been replaced over time due to like high combat battle. So, oh, sorry, were you going to say something? Else? Oh no, no. <laughs> yeah, I just so it's like movies, video games. Like, how does the anime characters play out? Well, usually they start off as a manga. They usually do. And then um, they, it, with growing popularity, they are morphed into films. And a lot of times you do find video games afterwards. Okay. Um, but yeah, they usually start off as mangas, um, kind of like comic books, like Japanese anime comic books. And for Ghost in the Shell, it was actually very popular um, manga. And I heard a couple of audience members really disappointed that they didn't have the, the film sequels as well in the digital film festival because they enjoyed the Ghost in the Shell so much. Mm-hmm. And so were those the films that you saw? Did you see anything else? No, I only got to see those on Friday. Um, but I do believe they play again or they played again today. Um, but I, 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 bo- I really enjoyed them and I wish I could have seen more. I wish I could have seen Tron the original because as per usual, I've only seen the sequel, Tron Legacy. And I liked that one, so. But it ends tomorrow, so hopefully I can catch one more movie before it ends. Mm-hmm. And is there anything uh, coming up, like, in the next day, so it ends tomorrow, that you would recommend? Uh, let me see. So, Ghost in the Shell actually does play tomorrow at 9.50 p.m. It does. And so does... Um, Fisher King plays today at 7 p.m., as well what's fisher king it's a modern day tale about the search for love sanity and the holy grail with it's with robin williams and jeff bridges okay okay and dark knight also plays today at well it's past it's three it was at three thirty-five p.m but yeah you can go see ghost in the shell tomorrow and i think that's it for tomorrow and where can you get more information about the digital film festival you can go to cineplex.com slash digital film festival for more details okay Good. And do you plan to go next year? What have you? Oh, yeah, definitely. I love superhero movies. Yeah. I love Avengers. I saw it like twice before. Have you seen the original series? No, I haven't. Oh, wow. (laughs) Because I've seen that with Emma Peel. Emma Peel was the character. What was? Oh, God, Diana. Oh, I have to Google it now. Google Avengers. She got she was Diana Rigg. 
She is the hottest. She <laughs> is truly the hottest. She had the best outfits. I mean, she had similar outfits to Uma Thurman, but um, yeah, she had so much style and they were just so classic. Some of the storylines mm-hmm. um, and Patrick McGowan, I think he was the guy that plays her kind of partner. So he was the more straight guy, but uh, amazing. There's mm-hmm. so many episodes and you'd really like them. I will go check it out tonight. It's been a while since I've seen one. Have you seen the original the, the movie Avengers? No. With Uma Thurman? No, with um Thor, so with Chris Hemsworth, Robert Downey Jr. Okay, no. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Uh the one with Uma Thurman is the one with the teddy bears, right? Like the evil teddy bears at some point. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that it's, sound familiar. It's different from Marvel Avengers. Though. Oh, okay. It's, okay. Uh, it's like a British thing. Yeah. But it's a similar like spy situation yeah but marvel avengers is like all of the marvel superheroes that come okay together and, uh, oh yeah. it's different yeah. so yeah, the ev- movie. yeah the avengers uh was a very famous tv series created in the 60s uh, so it was like two kind of british agents and they'd go on these episode uh like missions and things like that and they'd have these adventures and then so the avengers you're talking about is something totally different yeah they're superheroes <laughs> okay <laughs> Like Iron Man, Thor, Captain America. Yeah, you know what? That confused me too because I thought when they were originally doing the new Marvel Avengers, Mm -hmm. I thought they were talking about that TV series, the British TV series. So I was like, what? (laughs) What does Iron Man have to do with this? (laughs) So who's your favorite superhero, Danielle? I can't. I think it's Iron Man, definitely. I think just because Robert Downey Jr. plays him though. (laughs) Yeah, so you like Robert Downey Jr.? I do. Who's your favorite? Uh... Batman, because he doesn't actually have superpowers. He's just like a billionaire that wants to so like, do Iron good Man. for the world. Iron Man doesn't but no, have Iron Man has like a radioactive suit. Because he's a smarty pants. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's true. I guess Iron Man and Batman are like pretty on par. But I used to watch like the original Batman cartoons. No, so me I too. Have, yeah. I have a soft spot for Batman. I saw Wolverine the other night at my sister's. I like um, Wolverine as well. Yeah. But I don't like him by himself. He's too he, brooding by himself. He w- yeah. The, the storyline was good, like with the old Japanese man who wants to live forever. Mm. And Have you seen it? No. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, so it's like, and there's all these samurai themes, and that's cool. But on his own, yeah. And it's like he's saving someone, and suddenly his shirt's open, but it wasn't <laughs> open in the last shot. And what? Yeah. But I think my favorite. That's s- realistic. Yeah. Oh. I think my favorite superhero would be Superman. Because of yeah, Kryptonite. Classic. I like Kryptonite. <laughs> Did you and see the new one? No. I haven't either. I've only seen the 1978 version. I haven't seen the new one either. Yeah. Uh, rest in peace, Christopher Reeves. Yeah. That was sad. Yeah. And did, sorry, did I ask you what your favorite superhero was? Yeah. Yeah. Batman. 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 Sorry. I'm going to stick with Batman. I've had a long work day. I zip here from work, and then I'm like, kind of, my brain is blistered. So, Julia, you went to the Belkin Gallery. I did. I actually just went this morning. Um, They're having an exhibition um, called The Spaces Between, Contemporary Art from Havana. So it was curated uh, by Keith Wallace and, and Tonell, who is from Havana, actually, or he's from Cuba, but he went to university in Havana anyway. Um... So yeah, I, I went and I and I talked to Keith a bit, and um, <clears throat> it's it's really cool first of all, but it's not at all what I was expecting, um, which is probably a good thing. So it's uh it's it's kind of like an examination into Cuban life, 
uh, almost more so than actual art. Um, and Keith, he made it pretty clear that it's not really about coming into a gallery and just looking at objects. It's more about, uh, it's, it's supposed to be experiential. You're supposed to be try, trying to understand how people are navigating their way through through life in Havana. And um, so there was a lot of video installations that were very sort of ambient, kind of like going on in the background. Um, kind of if you're standing in the gallery just listening, you can hear all the noises from all the different videos, which was really cool. Um, it sort of creates this like layered experience. But um, yeah, uh, what, what I thought was really great about it was that um, it didn't kind of exoticize or like mystify the Cuban culture in any way. Um, it made it really sort of open to interpretation. Um, although, you know, in the press release, they talk a lot about how it's not really political and it's more about sort of the personal lives and relationships of the artists and, and their sort of experience living in Havana. But, I mean, it was, for me, I felt it was like very, very overtly political. Um, although in a kind of nuanced way because they're not, a, like they can't really, um, it's interesting because because the art is Cuban, they can't dissent really. They, mm-hmm. they have no way of doing that. And all the art is screened before it comes through. Oh, wow. Um, but so, so it's like, it's political, but in these very subtle ways. Um, for example, they have uh, these two TV screens that have a uh, news broadcast going on, um, but they're they're false. They're completely falsified um, broadcasts, and it's just like a very very subtle way to sort of say something about censorship and the kind of government that they that they are sort of trying to navigate in um, as artists. So. Yeah, it was it was very interesting, although like in the press release, I thought it was like a little bit misleading because I wasn't expecting it to be so in your face political. Or at least that's how I interpreted it. But I think that's kind of part of it is what Keith was saying was that the pieces are kind of just there. Um, they're not they're not abstract. Most of them are conceptual. So they're there for us to interpret. And uh, it's like most of it is very simple and sort of easy to understand. Um, and not too iconographical or like nothing that you have to really pick apart, but um, at the same time, obviously open to sort of multiple understandings. And obviously it was curated by Keith, uh, who's not Latin, and uh, Tonel, who's Cuban. So you have those like multiple perspectives coming into it in the first place, which uh, you could definitely see. But yeah, the the artwork is mostly what he described as lo-fi. So like... The video installations are like on small TV screens and they're very like simple. Um, and even the art itself, it's a lot of just photography or just like words on canvas and stuff like this. It's nothing um, super complex mm-hmm. um, or at least in its construction, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of focus on the actual material of the work. Um, it is conceptual. Um, but yeah, I thought, I thought the most sort of compelling part or compelling goal of the exhibit was uh, that Keith was saying that he wants it to resonate with uh, us Canadians or any sort of non-Cubans that lets us look back at our own society through a critical lens. So for example, the video installations with the fake news broadcast sort of makes you think, well, you know, we live in this 
uh, democratic society, but how much do we know about, you know, our own news broadcasts and Mm -hmm. our own media and uh, how much of that is is in our control and how much is not. Um, So it's sort of these spaces between what's being said and what's not being said. And um, yeah, I just, I thought, I thought that was the most incredible thing because you go into it thinking that it's this exhibit about a totally foreign place, but uh, they managed to present it in such a way that it, it's not sort of, doesn't come off as exotic. It just comes off as sort of people representing their, their everyday life experiences um, in a very specific place. And I mean, it is specific to Havana, but you get the feeling that you, you can look at it and see reflections of your own society or systemic problems in your own society. Um, and yeah, I think there was one particular piece that was about, um, sort of universities and it was like, uh, it's a projection and they're just projecting the names of these different theses that were written at the University of uh, Havana in the sociology department and all of these theses can't actually be read or accessed by the public uh, and have basically been censored mm. by the government and so it really got me thinking about sort of our own system because we know we have problems with universities being sort of controlled by by f- different forces outside of academia and how this kind of affects the information mm. that's produced and um, yeah. yeah at the same time like I, we, you know, we take for granted the sort of open access we have to yeah. knowledge. Like we can just, we can just enter the library site and look at thesis. We can Google Scholar a zillion articles. Or oh yeah, I liked what you said about it was like it was political. It wasn't overtly so, but it's like you can't separate it. Oh, like we have the luxury of separating it because we're not living in a society so infused you know, with political oppression, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You found that pretty much in any uh, of the installations, I mean, at least I found that it was political just because even though there are expressions of sort of uh, daily life or daily struggles of that could be applicable to any person, um, you can't help but apply the knowledge that we have about Cuba as Canadians Mm -hmm. or North Americans to each of those situations and they the there's a lot of themes of like economies and money and they had one um installation that was just uh these receipts and basically the artists just continually exchanged one u.s dollar for a cuban peso and back and forth and back and forth until um they couldn't actually get until the the peso had no value anymore and it was just all the receipts and you just can't you know, it's uh, you. You of course don't want to look at it with like pity, but you just can't help it. You can't help but look at something like that and really think about, uh, especially these comparisons between, you know, w- what we have in the states and sort of what's going on in these much more isolated countries mm-hmm. within a global context. Yeah. So, yeah. It wow. Was, it was really. Yeah, I know it's a lot. That's what I, I mean. Like I could go on and on because there's literally so many themes, and I, I guess that's kind of the point is that um, there's all this kind of complexity rather than putting this sort of incredibly diverse city into sort of a box or a or an idea of sort of what Latin America or Mm -hmm. what Cuba is and so I I think that's kind of the point is to not be singular but it is like a lot to take in and I recommend that if you go that you read up on some of the artists and some of the other work they've done as well 
because it'll make it a lot more clear for it's, you when you're it's there. It's great to experience the culture in that way versus just in the usual ways like we experience through documentary or TV or mm. you go on a tourist visit. Oh, yeah. But to That's... get the voices and the kind of feeling tone of the people that are living there. and Yeah, definitely. I think even like they have a lot of problems with tourism because I think a lot of times you go out to these places and it's almost like the, the fact that these places are sort of very poor becomes almost like a a sight to see mm. or like something to experience. And it's kind of, it's problematic. I, I yeah. know like I've traveled to third world countries and you feel weird being like a tourist mm -hmm. and looking at these people's lives that are so different from yours, but you're kind of, it's kind of voyeuristic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. but yeah, it was, it was a great way to experience it. It wasn't what I was expecting, but it was very positive. Yeah. So Good. definitely check it out. Can it's, you give us the details? Yeah. It's, uh, it's on till April 13th. So it's going to be there for a while and it's the Belkin. So it's free, mm -hmm. um, on UBC campus and their website, if you want to read, the press release and more about it is uh, www.belkin.ubc.ca. Excellent. Thank you, Julia. Thank no you, Danielle. You've welcome. both done a wonderful job and I want you to come back. We need arts reporters more than ever. And I'm going to play a song, Sister Havana by Urge Overkill, a band I was fond of back in the day. Um, here they are.
If you are 65 years of age or older, you may be eligible to participate in a free exercise program offered at the YMCA in Surrey, Langara, and downtown Vancouver as part of a research study being conducted by the University of British Columbia. In this program, you are invited to attend exercise classes offered three days per week for three months. If you are interested, call Dr. Samantha Hardin at 604-822-9140. Again, the number is 604-822-9140. More information at goal.kin.educ.ubc.ca. On February 8th, come join the Musqueam Nation in support of fundraising for their Youth Cultural Exchange to New Zealand. Headlining the fundraiser will be Murray Porter, a Juno Award-winning blues musician critically lauded for the interplay between his buttery soft keyboard skills and his gravelly intonated voice. The fundraiser benefits seven Musqueam youth who will be traveling to Rotorua to explore Maori culture and how it can inform their own traditional experience. The event will be held at the Musqueam Cultural Centre, located at 4000 Musqueam Avenue on Saturday, February 8th at 7 p.m. Hi, we're back on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm Sarah Lapsley, your host tonight of the Arts Report, and I'm here with Josh. Hi there, how are you? Good. Oops, I've got to turn you on. Hi there. Good, that's cool. good. Cool, yeah, I got it now. So Hello. we're just meeting for the first time. That's it. And who are you? <laughs> um, so I'm the music executive here at CITR, and I'm a first-year student. I just moved from Montreal, um, and uh, yeah, just studying arts, hanging out. How do you like Vancouver so far? It's good. It's a nice city. I yeah. Like it a lot. Yeah, there's a lot going on, too, which is cool. Yeah, there is. Montreal is, like, super cool, though. It doesn't get cooler than Montreal. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. A lot of people from Vancouver are, like, really surprised that I moved out here. Yeah. Um, there's that there's that real like Montreal Vancouver connection though I think yeah it's cool yeah do you speak French uh yeah a little bit yeah. English is my first language yeah for sure um also do a little bit of work here with the uh, news 101 okay what yeah. what type of stuff do you like to cover with news uh it's always good doing local stuff because that's kind of like it feels really relevant and feels um I guess that I don't know I, I guess local stuff is is really cool and talking to people that are from the community and stuff like that's really awesome but mm-hmm. um international stuff too i'm into so. what are the kind of just in a nutshell the kind mm-hmm. of issues you're interested in covering for the news um well last segment i did was for um Grandmar, which is a national um kind of news program that we um that we submitted an episode to and that was um about mental health situation in vancouver so that was pretty interesting and got to um interview somebody a, a, a psychiatry professor here at, or at ubc school of public health stuff so mm-hmm. that was really interesting who was the professor Dr. Michael Krauss. Okay, I don't yeah. know him. He's also heading the um, the um, Bell Mental Health um, kind of mm-hmm. program that's going on. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's yeah. interesting stuff. And so what was the take on mental health in Vancouver? Um, well, that the issue might be a little bit more, the solution at least to the issue might be a little bit more complex than just adding more beds and adding, mm-hmm. you know, more um, treatment facilities. There mm-hmm. kind of, there needs a, a little bit more a nuanced solution to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's something that politicians need to maybe be, be focusing on. Yeah, for so. sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish I had heard it. <laughs> I like mental health. I am all for mental health. Right on. Now you're, so you study arts mm-hmm. and you went to see a theater production. Yeah. I went to go see The Seagull, which is UBC Theater's uh, production that was going on um, you know, January 23rd, finishing up this weekend. February 8th is the last day to go see it. And, um, 
Yeah, and it's it's a pretty good show. So uh, the Seagulls is Anton Chekhov's one of Anton Chekhov's three great plays, um, and it finds humor in really serious dilemmas as well. It's kind of like la- a laughter sandwich between heart sickness and, and passion. Um, oh, yeah, a laughter sandwich. A laughter between, sandwich. That's it. Between passion and and uh, heart sickness. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so I saw it on opening night. And the 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 theater that where the troupe that do the UBC theater so these are like students UBC theater students they do a really good job of kind of you know creating that that textured and, and complex world that complements the, the 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 script that Chekhov brings that is kind of tragic comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean I saw it on opening li- opening night, and um, and there were these moments between the laughter of these really you know, moments of dread. The really powerful moments that come out through through the play, where it's just like, I don't know, you're laughing, you're laughing, but you're not quite sure why you're laughing, and and it, it's a it's a really good play in that respect. And theater UBC they they carry the the melodrama and the pastoral boredom that this play kind of works with at the same time. Um, it, it's an excellent script for sure. Chekhov is like a great white writer. He's one of those Russian, you know, great Russian writers. Um, he's just really good at his trade, really competent at writing. And and as enjoyable and easy to watch as it is, like, it's a great play. There's also some, he poses some really challenging aspects. There's, I don't know if you've ever heard this quote before. There's a, a really good Chekhov quote that's often quoted and stuff. It's, it's the role of the artist is to ask questions, not answer them. Hmm. And I think in a lot of respects that this play, this play reflects that. Um, there are a lot of questions posed and there's a lot to think about there. There's these, these dancing symbols and interrogations of the nature of the soul and, and gloomy confrontations with death. It's, it's a heavy play in a lot of respects. It's really heavy. Um, it's directed by Kathleen DuBorg, who's a UBC Master of Fine Arts directing student. And she does a tremendous amount with the script, kind of um, looking at those denser aspects, but also balancing these, these kind of melodramatic scenes. Because what's happening here is that the seagull's um, about a young writer and his mother who is a um who's an actress an aging actress so you have this youthful writer constantine his mother is also um her boyfriend or her lover is a is a really successful popular writer so you have these kind of two writers going on and then the trouble kind of starts when um constantine's lover becomes infatuated with his mother's lover so you kind of have this cross going on these love triangles that that emerged. So it's centering kind of this country community, very, you know, country lull around this lake and this estate. Um, and, and things get obviously really complicated. And, and like any good Russian play, it's filled with subplots and, um, you know, really prominent supporting characters that do a lot for the play. It's unrequited love, unrequited love kind oh, of to the fullest no. degree. With with wit and you know violent fits of emotion. Oh, and um, sounds terrible, uh, horrible. It's, it's not terrible though because there is that comedy and it doesn't take itself so seriously. Yeah, right. Um, it really doesn't take itself so seriously. So the the production, the way one of the great things that the the production does and the way that they manage to succeed with this play is that they're bringing coherency to these layers and these complexity of what's going on. Um, the setup of the stage is also really cool. They have um, kind of it's, it's not overdone at all. There's the the way that they use state the stage and especially kind of these upstage and downstage dynamics are really cool. Um, Heartsick Constantine, played by Thomas Elms, 
who's a great actor, possesses a really strong stage presence and a really good range uh, for a young actor especially. He's really hot too, judging from this <laughs> website that I'm looking at. Yeah, he's an attractive guy for sure. <laughs> um, he's he kind of tangled in, in the struggle of trying to create something for himself. Um, well, at least the character is. I'm not, I'm not sure about him personally, but the character is, is kind of caught up in that in that in this um, this struggle and trying to trying to pl- make a place for himself in the world. Um, and he he works to create this really likable character, which is cool. Um, also worth mentioning is the character of Masha, played by Helena Fisher Welsh, and she's the daughter of the estate manager. So the, all the action is taking place at this estate, and uh, she's also in love with Constantine. So you have uh, you know these really sharp, uh, morose, well delivered lines, um, and it also feels that there's this whole play that could be written about her. She's this, you know, kind of supporting role, but there's this whole thing that's hinted at beyond the play that's really valuable. Um, and, and that's a great feature of the work is that the seagulls, it's, it's driven by character and the meaning of the, you know, meaning comes through character, not through so much through plot, which is just really fantastic to see on stage. Um, Another really cool, interesting about this, especially, you know, we're on arts arts report, and I found this especially interesting. Um, kind of Chekhov's discussion of, of writing and creation, the joy of creation. And and that's a really intriguing area of the play for me. And, and kind of the sequel's about documenting life as much as it is about, you know, the everyday banality and the conflicts mm-hmm. that life's composed of. Um, now, here's here's the thing that I had with this play, though. The the play starts off great, and the first half is awesome. The second half starts first off with a jump in time, a jump forward in time two years. Now that's granted that's hard to deal with, you know, whatever the circumstances in any kind of work of drama. A jump in time that kind of sets the audience off, and I, I felt kind of like offset by this. Um, and for the most part, the troupe is is able to preserve the tension that it dealt with in the first half. And the way that the characters deal with the passage of time, of course, has a lot of insight into the story. It's a lot of young characters, and youth is a big part of this play. So the way that they deal with this passage of time is important. But the pacing starts to kind of lag on a little bit as action becomes more erratic and the plot kind of thickens uh, near the end. So final two scenes especially are a bit disappointing. Um, But I have a feeling that that was probably due to opening night nerves, at least Mm -hmm. in part. Mm -hmm. And that... As the as the play kept going, um, I mean, it's been on for two weeks now. That it's it's they've been able to kind of iron out those kinks, or at least they will be able to in these these last kind of final nights. Um, so I think it's definitely worth going to check out. It's on till February eighth at Telus Theater, which is in the Chan Center. And yeah, wow, the seagull, the seagull. That's it by Anton Chekhov. I think you gave a really excellent review of that you. play. You're that. super smart, Josh. Thank you. thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for hosting. This is awesome. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Now, do you have a request? Like, you're the music executive? Yeah, like, sure. Um, um, something some that music. can say, maybe pull up. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, I want to hear... Um, there's this... Uh, uh, Producer from North Van called Nouveau Cliché. Okay. He has a uh, tape that just came out called Strangers. Okay. You'll be able to find that on Bandcamp real quick. Okay. Nouveau Cliché. Okay. Let's see. Someone can keep talking. Nouveau Cliché. He's from North Van. Nouveau Cliché. I think I can spell that. Yeah. Uh, Bandcamp. He's got these weird kind of synthy stuff going on. Dream pop. Ooh, I like dream pop. Yeah, it's nice. Okay, SoundCloud? No, Bandcamp. Here we are. So, uh, 
Now, do we have to buy them? Just click. Yeah, the album up there, Strangers. Is Great Divide, or this is the album mm -hmm. you like? Oh, that's just the photo. <laughs> uh, can you grab it? Yeah, I, there we go. Okay, and then play. just press play on Strangers. Okay. So this is Strangers, Nouveau Cliché. Thanks, Josh. We'll be back in a few minutes with some more announcements.
Yeah, the state of hip hop right now, man, as far as the way I see it, um, I think right now, um, hip hop is advancing as far as skills. You got brothers, you know what I'm saying, getting like more witty. There ain't nobody to be pretty for. Let it rattle, let the clatter kill him, let the cataclysm wash. Who really listens? Precision with the verse draws a cry. Draw a line between an easy melody and peace of mind. Uh -huh. You got DJs doing all kind of crazy shit on the turntable. sure what happened there band camp kind of ran away it was like a runaway train anyways that's over sorry about that um we're back on CITR 101.9 FM I'm Sarah Lapsley this is the arts report and I had some great arts reporters covering stuff um and I just wanted to tell you about a few events at the O'Dane Gallery in Vancouver, there's something happening tonight. So put on your boots, put on your winter boots and run out the door to the O'Dane Gallery. It's tonight, Wednesday, February 5th at 6. So like right now, it's uh, called No Looking After the Internet, Helen Reed Body Techniques. Um, so I think it's a talk. Um Sociologist Marcel Mauss used the term techniques of the body to describe a background level of learned social behavior about the proper use of the body. By slipping between time periods, institutional frameworks, and social context, uh, Murat Slade Bonis excavates the accumulation of these implicit techniques. Um, so Helen Reed is going to kind of look, I guess, at the work of Murat Slade Bonis um, and talk about Okay, this is, I'm totally confused. Excuse me. Helen Reed is going to talk about Althea Thalberger's show, which is on at the gallery. And I guess the character that Thalberger is playing in that show is Marat Said Bonis. So it's a lot of confusion, a lot of art speak that I don't understand, but I'm telling you, this is a cool talk. And Althea Thalberger's show is super, super cool. When I saw it last night, I started salivating. I'm very excited about it. Um, so Helen Reed is going to shed some light on this very important um, art and uh, no looking after the internet prompts the close reading of m images and objects and encourages visual literacy through stained private and public attention in the gallery. Uh, so Reed is really uh, an artist herself um, and says her projects take vernacular form. Uh, as television shows, publications, postcards, and other media, um, and exhibited work all over the place, New York, Toronto, uh, Portland, Seattle. So she's, uh, I would say, a star, um, and she's going to be talking about Althea Thauberger's work in a nutshell. 
So I'm going to go see Althea's show and I'm going to talk about it more. Um, so that's good. Um, so yeah, chances are you're probably not going to make it out tonight anyway. But do check out uh, www.sfu.ca slash galleries um, slash events and uh, it will bring you to the Odane Gallery page. So sorry about that muddled thing. Artspeak muddles me. I'm not going to lie. Um, I can't make too much sense of it. So I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about Philip Seymour Hoffman. So he passed away this week suddenly, and I, I was really surprised by the amount of like, you know, when someone, celebrity dies, everyone talks about it. There's this big outpouring. But there was, a, I'd say, even more of an outpouring, I guess, because of the element of surprise to his death um, and sadness. And what struck me, I mean, I understand addiction. So the fact that he had relapsed um, wasn't a surprise at all. I think I just reflected that how sad it was, like, those of us who aren't successful artists often wish we had more success. Um, and here's someone who had, you know, critical acclaim, all the roles he could ever want for the rest of his life, presumably money. He lived in New York. Um, you know, he had a family, um, children, and celebrity friends sort of everything most of us think we would want to make us happy and it didn't it didn't make him happy um, and it's just a reminder that it's our internal world that um, dictates how happy we are and so whether we're you know whatever the circumstances of our lives those are the outer circumstances and we have to um, strengthen ourselves within I mean I think this was accidental um, so, you know, when you are a heroin addict and you don't use for a while, your tolerance goes down. And so if you overdo it, and especially if you get like a bad batch, which apparently was going around, um, it's easy to overdose. So there was articles, I read astrological ones, um, analyzing the circumstances of his death. I read sad ones, uh, but someone at work forwarded me an article that made me really quite angry. Um, and I'm I, I can't get the name of who it wrote because it's sort of been passed around. But the 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 um the the writer was not very, I would say, um, like empathetic to Philip Seymour Hoffman's plight of addiction. Um, he felt like you know, people have been drawing, the author felt like people have been drawing conclusions that there is an heroin ec epidemic, which he refutes with some kind of garbled statistics, which aren't really that accurate. He's quite a biased writer, and he writes against this idea of the disease model for addiction. So the disease model says, um, like, addiction is a disease that doesn't resolve except through abstinence, that addicts don't have they're powerless to overcome the disease um and and uh this writer calls the disease theory recovering addict bullshit so right away i'm like your credibility's gone for saying uh, really biased things like that and he says hoffman was taught helplessness through his involvement in the recovery union re uh, movement 
um, that Hoffman, that this writer claims that most people mature out of narcotic addiction, um, which might be true that some people mature out. I don't have the exact statistics, but there are many um, who fail to, like he's saying there's the mi- a minority who fail to recover or become terminal addicts. And uh, I don't know if that's the minority when it comes to narcotic addiction. Most people end up in serious trouble and eventually um, dead. But he said, uh, corralled by the disease theory in rehab in his early 20s, Philip Seymour Hoffman failed to allow himself to mature out to develop a realistic assessment of his own strength relative to pharmaceuticals and other drugs. As a result, he was left vulnerable, not to a cunning, baffling, and powerful substance or disease, but to an emptiness and a learned powerlessness or helplessness in this area of his life, which so contrasted with his forcefulness and mastery in his acting career. I just really take umbrance to this. Like, who the heck are you, writer? I don't even know your name. I wouldn't say it anyways to give you the publicity. Um, I don't think this writer knows nearly enough about addiction or the disease theory or other theories to make such um, a claim. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman lived many years in recovery and abstinence, had a tremendous career that will last much longer than this writer who just, uh, you know, dashed something out that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, although he's entitled to his opinion. Um, But I don't think he can say um, that that drugs are not cunning, baffling, and powerful because any addict knows that they are. Um, And how dare he say that Philip Seymour Hoffman had an emptiness and a learned powerlessness or helplessness. He doesn't know. Um, And in fact, Philip Seymour Hoffman had a moment in time where this accident happened and he might have quickly gotten into recovery had he not accidentally overdosed um and 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 what is left dear writer of this crap article is his forcefulness and mastery in his acting career and uh, i never was really that fond of philip seymour hoffman um but uh I'm now going to, and I'm just looking at his picture and I feel so sad. That makes me really sad. So I'm going to play a song. We're going to leave you for tonight. But do stay tuned because um, we've got another episode of Blank Verse coming right up. Um, And and, um, I'm going to be kind of introducing that. I'm going to be back kind of every week for a while till we figure out what's happening um, with the arts department here. So um, I just talked about, I gave a really garbled uh, kind of announcement about the O'Dane Galleries. And that um, announcement was sent to me by Brady Cranfield, uh, who runs the O'Dane Gallery or is involved there. And uh, I want to play a song. He's in a band. Brady Cranfield is in a, a band with Kathy Slade, who's another big art mover and shaker. And I've played this song before. And I play it sometimes when I feel sad about people that have passed away. Um, and it's a beautiful cover of Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks. So I'm going to play that. And R.I.P. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Don't listen to that mean writer. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay, so come back soon for Blank Verse, and I'll see you next week.
Thank you. 